Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 180, The Invisible Forces That Shape Western Buddhism. We're joined by practitioner-scholar Hokai Sobel to explore the many invisible and often unexplored cultural forces that shape contemporary Western Buddhism. This is part one of a multi-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello. Hey, Hokai. Hi, Vince. How's it going? Hey. Yeah, great. Cool. I've been waiting for this phone call. You know, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it has been a while. Our last recording we did was uh, when you were in Boulder in person. That was like, must have been a year, year and a half ago. Yeah. yeah. That's a long time ago. Yeah. And I have stuff put aside just to share with you. Yeah, I know we had a talk last week and I was wanting to explore this one topic with you and then I, I suggested it and suddenly, you know, we spent an hour and a half going over what sounds like either a book or a like six-part episode on Buddhist geeks <laughs> or both. And, uh, yeah, a six-part six summary of an endless episode yes. series. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, but it's really interesting stuff, too. So, it's not that this is going to bore people at all. This is really fascinating, interesting material. It just feels like it's the type of topic that needs some extra time to really go into the to the nitty-gritty with you. Sure, but I think the, you know, the only audience out there I know of with a high percentage of people interested in this stuff is the Buddhist Geeks audience, anyway, so... I guess this is the right place to discuss things like this. Yeah, yeah. And this is hopefully going to be a first of many, I guess, original conversations around topics that are of real relevance to you know, contemporary practitioners. We might call it Buddha Dharma 2.0 in some yeah, ways. Yeah. And the topic that we're going to explore, we, we decided a title for it, which is The Invisible Forces That Shape Western Buddhism. Oh, yeah. I figured I'll, I'll say a little bit about what we discussed and why this topic's important, what the topic is. And oh, then, please do. And yeah. then I'll expect you to chime in with some uh, erudite wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Good, yeah. Okay, yeah. So as I, as I understand it, and correct me again if I miss important things, but as I understand it, usually when we talk about Dharma, we think about our individual practices we think about the tradition, maybe. We think about teacher-student relationships. But there are also a lot of really invisible forces that we don't often think about or talk about, which could include things like economics. It could include things like cultural uh, inheritance. It could include basically ways that we make meaning but don't really recognize that we're making meaning in that way. It includes all sorts of issues around autonomy of the individual versus the communion of the group that they're in, issues around hierarchy versus sort of more pure egalitarian modes of being with each other. So many invisible things that we don't necessarily pay attention to that are still shaping the way Western Buddhism plays itself out. 
in terms of actual communities, of teacher-student relationships, of the way that dharma is exchanged. Is it exchanged for money? Is it given freely? All sorts of ways that we interact as dharma students and practitioners and teachers that we're just not even usually aware of. Well, yeah. I mean, you mentioned that there are many ways we make meaning, but because these forces or influences are often unrecognized and because they often function behind our awareness, as it were, these structures that are already in place in the collective shared space make meaning for us so that very often what we decide to make the meaning is what is being offered by these hidden influences or forces so that basically we decide among a very limited range of options and without recognizing how that range is limited and what is the actual content of that uh, range we're being offered by our own whether cultural or techno-economic situation, we uh, end up uh, making meaning that we believe is a product of our free will or informed choice or whatever, while uh, as good as we may try, some of these... uh, meanings and some of these solutions and choices that we make are indeed strongly controlled or conditioned by the just as you said you know cultural and economic uh, conditioning that uh, is uh, it would seem inescapable as soon as you move off your cushion mm. and i would argue i would argue even while you're on the cushion right uh, yeah this is sort of i guess the blind spot of dharma practice right where it's the idea is that if i sit on the cushion and pay attention to the content of my experience that somehow i'm going to see all of the conditioning that shapes me and i'll be able to influence it yeah well it's it's a blind spot of traditional dharmic formulations of course because Mm. they had not yet discovered these uh, spheres of human activity in a way they have been made obvious to us by the modern and postmodern cultural developments, not just theories, but new ways of investigating human relationships, especially the ways people come together, the ways people exchange stuff, whether, you know, hard stuff or services, what we know as economics, and especially the ways that people come together in uh, making meaning and sharing values, what we know as culture. If I can just give a very brief uh, background for this discussion, although many geeks out there will uh, definitely be aware of some of this stuff, but originally the Buddhist teaching has been, at least in, in the form preserved in the earliest strata of literature, has been uh, presented through the framework of Four Noble Truths, And the fourth of these, namely the path that leads from one situation to a completely rediscovered situation, 
that can be you know argued as a new situation or the old situation seen with fresh eyes but this path that leads from one point to the other point is known as the noble eightfold path or sometimes it's summarized as the three trainings sometimes people will say morality meditation and uh, wisdom but actually in the noble eightfold path the wisdom comes first so the wisdom is again presented in the noble eightfold path in uh, two elements or two components the first one being uh, right view and the second one being right intention though some people translate this uh, differently for our purpose right view and right intention fit uh, what we need to discuss taken together these two constitute something we may call right attitude Basically, right attitude provides certain clarity of intention and certain clarity of direction and a will to move on and also a basic set of uh, concepts, including a clear understanding of one's present situation and how one wants to proceed, at least on a, you know initial conceptual uh, level. So this right attitude is a dynamic notion that stands right there at the beginning of the Eightfold Path. In Pali and Sanskrit, we find the expression Kushala Chitta, which would basically mean, I say right attitude, but it's a healthy attitude. Some people would use notions like virtuous mind, which I don't think is very helpful. So a healthy attitude is something that we can easily resonate with. So basically there is a healthy attitude there, but traditionally it's framed as something spiritual and nothing cultural is implied there, at least not in the you know, language used in the early scripture. And the reason is very simple, because uh, cultural uh, situations or contexts in which spirituality was pursued at the time, these situations were rather stable three generations, namely your, your grandfather, your father, and yourself, or your grandmother, your mother, and yourself, would be born, would live, and would die in a virtually, basically uh, unchanging uh, cultural situation. Right. And nowadays, you know, even during one lifetime, we can see multiple values playing themselves across the economic and political and cultural scenes. And these values influencing one another, we even talk about culture wars, and we may even see a shift in values. It may be a micro-shift, like the one that happened during the 60s and 70s era, or it may be a huge shift to an entirely new level, as has happened during the Enlightenment, and that began even before, during the Renaissance period. Some people would point out that we are on a threshold of a new huge shift. I wouldn't go into that at this point anyway. So basically, when the traditional texts talk about the right attitude, they will describe the spiritual meaning of this, what is right and what is an attitude. But the spiritually informed uh, right attitude never functions in a cultural vacuum. So basically, a spiritual attitude of any kind will magnetize certain content from the immediate cultural uh, situation in which the practitioner 
or practitioners in plural find themselves immersed in. So basically, if you have a spiritual attitude or a healthy attitude in, you know, agricultural India 2,500 years ago, and if you have the same, basically, spiritually speaking, healthy attitude in 21st century West, especially, you know, uh, Europe and United States and countries that share the features of this part of the world, in that case, what will magnetize around that right or healthy attitude will be of a different nature. Basically, the roles and the relationships and the whole range of tacit knowledge that was available to Indians more than 20 centuries ago will differ hugely from the roles, relationships and tacit knowledge available to Westerners nowadays. And basically what will happen is that unwittingly we may find this right attitude exposed and then fused with a completely different set of cultural values and cultural assumptions because of which we may have well, modestly speaking, certain difficulties. Let's frame it that way. I believe this is the reason why we need sometimes to check and look into more seriously into our both economic and sometimes technological, but certainly cultural systems and analyze these in terms that are not overly, you know, either scholar or academic or analytic or statistic or whatever, but analyze them in, uh, you know, accessible terms that could hopefully provide us with tools of recognizing when some of these hidden forces are at play and when we unwittingly find ourselves identified with some of the roles and, and, and find ourselves perpetuating some of the relationships that perhaps uh, were not even dreamed of in the time of the historical Buddha and that definitely have, a, have an influence on how the Dharma is actually you know, taking place in our culture at this time. Great. That's a great framework for for the conversation and i just wanted to highlight one thing you said because as i understand it it's really kind of the crux of this conversation which is not to sort of explore this topic from a, just a purely scholarly perspective where we're just sort of talking about the ideas but rather it's exploring it in the service of trying to be a little more free around some of these identifications that we may not even notice we have or, oh, yeah. ro- or roles or whatever the systems Yes. Um, not to say we, you, Hokai, and I, Vincent, have the answers, but rather that this is something that, that you, for instance, have explored a lot and it's been real prime interest for you as a teacher and as a, as a scholar. Oh, yeah, far from, you know, offering any, any sort of answers or recipes or solutions, you know, or patronizing anyone in this discussion, the best I can do and the best I can hope that you will help me in this discussion is try to formulate certain uh, situations that arise quite naturally and that we share with most practitioners out there. These situations can be framed and formulated as potential problems, but also as opportunities 
if we can become more aware of them and step into them without, you know, either paranoia or distrust or certain ideological bias that would make it uh, impossible for us, you know, to deal with them in a constructive, uh, open-handed way. Okay. Nice. And I guess to sort of come from the big picture and then down into the specifics, we thought it would be good to talk about and explore some actual traditional examples of these invisible forces and how they they might operate, as well as some contemporary examples, because we have tons of different Buddhist communities operating all over the West. A lot of them operate pretty differently from one another. So we have plenty of examples from the past and currently of of these sort of forces in play. It seemed useful to, to sort of talk about what's come before and what's now before we could even talk about what might be. Yeah, you want me to talk about the traditional roles as yeah as they are being handed down. Yeah, I think okay, that'd be so, helpful yeah, to yeah, to, to yeah. illustrate you know what we're okay. talking about. Okay, so basically the two sources that we have for traditional roles and relationships in uh, the Dharma study are uh, canonical literature and the commentarial literature, of course. And additional third layer of literature specific to each school and tradition, like, uh, you know, chronologies and events that took place. So this is a, like a written down record of what went on before. Some of this is, of course, conditioned by idealizations or, you know, uh, uncritical uh, exaggerations in some cases. Though the earliest strata, namely the Pali Canon, is uh, amazingly journalistic, you know, in many respects, when it comes to describing the the arising of the first conventions in the Buddhist Sangha. But later on, uh, especially in Mahayana and uh, Vajrayana, although you know I'm not critical of these traditions being a Vajrayana practitioner myself, we certainly find a lesser degree of journalism if I may say so, when it comes to describing uh, historical events, and we find much more, uh, you know, literary freedom there. Anyway, by a careful study of the texts, we may we may easily get to know that some of the early roles around the teacher-student relationship and around the relationship between students, namely within the community, that. Uh, these roles and relationships developed organically. They were not received at once through a codex of behavior, but instead many of the rules and principles were laid down as solutions to problems after problems have made themselves clear. And not just the ethical precepts of the early uh, Sangha, but also some of the disciplinary principles and then the details that have nothing to do with ethics that are concerned with exterior behavior and with certain practicalities were developed as uh, pragmatic solutions for certain difficulties to make the life of the uh, monks and uh, lay people run smoothly and to make their exchange and meeting and relationship uh, run as smooth as possible and to solve the problems in a proper way when these arise. So basically what we find is that there was an understanding, for example, that the monks would uh, 
be those who are uh, devoted to studying and practicing the Dharma 24-7 and that the community of monks would uh, provide the gist of Dharma to the lay people at no charge, quote-unquote, but instead, and this is not charging, but it's a way of exchanging, of course, but instead the lay people would take care of the monks and their basic needs through a system of donations that would imply uh, food and basic necessities like cloth for the robes and you know stuff like medicine and later even some money or what would function as money whether handled by the monks themselves or by someone assisting them in that anyway there is an early model of economic relationships described in details and there is also a model of relating between a teacher of dharma and his uh, students or apprentices whatever word we tend to use these teachers, again, were not necessarily monks, but in the vast majority of cases they were, at least in the very early history of Buddhism. The students also were not always uh, novice monks or young monks or nuns, but were also students who could also be lay people. So theoretically, we could imagine a situation where a monk or an elder nun teaches both the ordained and the lay. And we could also theoretically imagine a situation where the lay teacher, there are examples of lay teachers even in the time of the Buddha, would teach you know, lay people and in some extraordinary situation, although the later code of behavior and uh, ethical and behavioral regulations prohibited mostly the situation where younger would teach the older, where women would teach the men, or where lay would teach the ordained. So, as the time went on, the situation became somewhat formalized and uh, narrowed down, but uh, originally all sorts of combinations did happen, would happen, and the very early relationship between teachers and apprentices created an ideal of a teacher where a teacher would basically be seen as a senior you know in holy life in skill in meditation in knowledge in experience in general so basically there was a there was a relationship between a junior and a senior somehow there was no sharp contrast between uh, the teacher and the student of course there was a sharp contrast during the buddha's life but after that there was a uh, something we would nowadays see as an egalitarian taste of this relationship, but I wouldn't bet on it because we don't see the invisible cultural overlay or uh, the invisible cultural foundations in India, Tibet, China, Japan, Burma, you know, Korea, any of those countries. Saying that someone is more senior immediately, you know, implies a huge deal of respect, a huge deal of humility, and implies a whole attitude that is absent when we in the postmodern West say that someone is senior and someone is junior in any discipline. We even think that the junior must somehow challenge the senior generation, you know, bringing something new into the discourse. At least this is encouraged in the Western educational system, you know, in the universities. Uh, 
that want to do something with their education. People are encouraged, you know, to think independently and to speak up independently. This was not exactly the case in traditional Asian societies. Yeah. So anyway, even when we start with a very mild distinction between a teacher and a student, even in that senior-junior distinction, there is, there is a huge amount of relationship implied. As the Buddhist history moves on, we find these positions moving even a little bit further. Namely, in the Mahayana tradition, we find that the teacher must be a bodhisattva. Well, bodhisattva is almost an angel in the Western sacred uh, terminology. And bodhisattva can, of course, be ordained or lay, but a special name is used for a bodhisattva when he's someone's instructor, guide, a spiritual friend, etc. And there is Kalyana Mitra. And Kalyana Mitra basically is often translated as good friend. This again, you know, <laughs> when we hear that someone is a good friend, this is almost a saying that he's a buddy. Mm-hmm. And uh, something else is implied there, of course. In the Asian cultures, Kalyana Mitra is never your buddy. Whether we look at the Mahayana in India, which lasted until the 11th or 12th century, whether we look at uh, you know Tibetan or Chinese or Japanese, Burmese and any other situation, teacher in Mahayana would not be someone that you would be very comfortable at relating as buddy, even if he was just your father. So basically we find that a teacher is described with many, many uh, virtues. And then again, that what is expected from a student is a great deal of devotion, dedication, of course, not to the teacher personally, but to that which the good friend or the spiritual friend is expected to guide you to, namely the Dharma and the path and eventually fruition of that path. And without proper guidance, of course, it is said that you may wander aimlessly, you know, for many lives, not just this one. And basically this traditional attitude transmits into the relationship between a teacher and student in a way that again, in the scripture, may remain rather invisible. And if you haven't had a really intimate uh, relationship with the traditional Asian teacher, being a Western student of Dharma, you may be completely, you know, unaware of this cultural assumption that is there, even nowadays, because most Asian teachers visiting West will behave differently in the West while teaching. And they will, uh, you know, establish a flexible, different relationship with their students, at least with the entry-level students, so to say. So before you become a committed private student, you may not even be aware that there is a lot of cultural material there uh, waiting to be discovered. Mm-hmm. And of course, there is a minority of Asian teachers. I don't want to be misunderstood in this respect, you know. There is a minority of Asian teachers that are already stepping boldly with both feet into the 21st century and that are uh, doing their best to evolve their way of not just teaching but of relating to individual students, uh, whether Eastern or Western, 
and to basically invite and embody a new type of relationship that would better fit our post-traditional attitudes and values. And again, to come back to the uh, traditional story, after the Mahayana, we know that another tradition arose from the field of Mahayana, and basically we know it as either Vajrayana or Mantrayana or sometimes called Tantric Buddhism and sometimes Esoteric Buddhism. This last development, which is coterminous or uh, simultaneous uh, to the development of Zen, this last development brought another ideal or another description for the role of the teacher, at least for the more advanced or more senior teachers uh, in the lineages. Namely, that's the idea of a guru or uh, as lama in the Tibetan tradition or known in some other Asian countries with different names and with different titles but we tend to use the term guru in the West these days as somehow a generic term for all those teachers in the Vajrayana. But an indisputed fact remains that the guru plays an even, could we say, more somber role than even the good friend, the spiritual friend from the Mahayana, in the sense that guru is sometimes understood to embody even the three jewels, themselves so you don't get any heavier than that you know mm. and in that case basically the devotion overwhelms the whole description of what being a good student means and for our contemporary understanding this is not easy to wrap our minds around you know what this basically means in the spiritual sense and then find a a well-adapted cultural expression of that, whether while alone in a room with this teacher or being this teacher, mm. it's even more difficult, I would think, or in a, in a public place, you know, with many other people present, or even start thinking what are the economics of this relationship in the 21st century America or France or Russia or whatever. So as this role of the teacher developed in these three distinct uh, ways, although something that they share something in common, namely the general implied trust and benevolence and, you know, a right attitude shared by the teacher and the student, although a very mature form of the right or healthy attitude in the teacher and a very early initial form of the healthy attitude in the student. So, there are shared and common traits in all these relationships, but there is also always a huge amount of unrecognized cultural material there if we only study the texts. But if we allow ourselves to see what people who have studied Buddhism in traditional settings will tell us, then we recognize that indeed the cultural assumptions there are really very rich and that by simply cleaning our Buddhism from all these cultural assumptions, oh my, if that was so easy, you know, we could just, you know, strip Buddhism from any culture and we would have like the very pure uh, spiritual recipe, but it just doesn't work. When you remove a certain 
set of cultural assumptions, what will immediately be magnetized into that space is another set of cultural assumptions, unavoidably. And if these cultural assumptions are not carefully put together or chosen, and I'm talking about the long time of this process, while they are not carefully put together and chosen, they should at least be recognized. And that's what we're talking about. So basically, traditionally, just to sum it up, student has been warned to develop a healthy attitude, to equip oneself with serenity and clear understanding of you know principles and practices and basic nature of experience and to approach well-respected teacher and to study with that teacher with a deep sense of conviction, trust, devotion, not being selfish with supporting and helping this teacher in any way with body, mind and speech is the traditional phrase and if possible to ordain. So that's the traditional setting basically and that's what we have been handed down by literature and by some of the institutionalized Asian Buddhism that is still uh, alive in the East. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.